0: The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, I missed you guys last week. It was great to be at Emmaus Road and see what God is doing there. And uh, it's neat to see how God has been able to use us, Jacob's Well, as a church, to plant Emmaus Road and and all the good things that God is doing there. So, But it's good to be back. Um, Sunday before last, as is our tradition for Thanksgiving every year, we went down to Kansas City to hang out with the Jackson tribe. And so for three days, 25 of us Jacksons get together in my sister's house and uh, the kids wrestle, we play games, we talk, we of course eat lots and lots of food. And, uh, And then after three days, we all head home to the uttermost ends of the earth on Thanksgiving day. Our oldest son, Corbin, was a little bit groggy, and we thought, you know, maybe he's just worn out from all of the excitement and all the fun. And he was sleeping on the couch, and we didn't think much of it. The next day, he seemed better. And then we took our 12-hour car ride home. Well, we found out shortly after that during that 12-hour car ride home, all of us caught the flu. And so we headed home, and Sunday morning when I was at Emmaus Road, I was feeling sick and didn't have much of an appetite. Um, My throat started to hurt, um, but had to play in the turkey bowl, right? You got to tough that out. So, (coughs) excuse me. (coughs) So, played in the turkey bowl. Um, It was bragging rights. I couldn't give Dan Breed the upper hand. And then um, afterwards, went home, took a shower, went to bed, and was just extremely sore. Not from physical activity, but extremely sore from being sick mixed with the physical activity. Well, Monday morning I woke up and I had a migraine headache and I, I just I couldn't see any light at all. There was so much pain and I remember just rolling in bed thinking, God, is this ever going to end? Will there ever be a good day again? And this is just 24 hours into my sickness. As you can tell, it's still going. It's an ongoing sermon illustration. Well, Monday, sorry, Tuesday, I woke up and I had a really hacking cough. Some of that you can hear. The the congestion was in my lungs. Wednesday, my throat started to swell. It started to get sore. Every night as a family, we got together and we prayed and we said, Lord, please heal us. We are so sick of being sick. We want there to be a good day again. Will there ever, God, be a good day again? Or will we always be sick? Even now, my wife is home with Carissa and Cooper who are still very sick. As we look at today's passage, you see the people of God as a nation are going through a great suffering. And they're asking, Lord, will it ever be good again? All of you have been sick. All of you have probably felt those emotions of, God, will I ever be healthy again? But for hundreds and hundreds of years, the people of God wondered, Lord, will it ever be good again? Have you ever asked God, when will the pain end? When will the suffering end? When will the sickness and the disease and death end? When will the turmoil in my family end? When will the injustice in the world end? If you have ever asked those questions, and I hope that you have, Isaiah chapter 9 is written for you. If you would please open up to Isaiah chapter 9. We're actually going to start two verses back in Isaiah chapter 8. I believe it's page 573 in the Red Bible and page 837 in the Children's Bible. Today is the second Sunday of Advent, and it's the Sunday of prophecy. That's why we have the second candle lit over here. A prophecy is very simply a statement about something that is going to happen in the future. It's a prediction, a promise of something that is to come. There are very many, there are a lot of prophecies about Christ's life, death, and resurrection And the Old Testament. And today we are turning to one of the most famous in Isaiah chapter 9. It's a promise that was given 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And so let's start Isaiah chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 21 and read through 9-7. Isaiah 8 verse 21. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into content the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in the darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every Garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Lord God, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of a Savior, God, let us realize that there are many of your saints who waited much longer than we ever will. There are many of your saints who waited hundreds of years for relief, hundreds of years for the King to come, hundreds of years for this new kingdom. God, help us not to trivialize it, God. Help us not to take it for granted. Help us to see the glorious news of the coming of the King, the coming of the long-expected one, the coming of, of the prophesied one. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to look at four things with you this morning. First, the former kings. Secondly, the former kingdom. Thirdly, the new kingdom. And fourthly, the new king. Okay, that's what we're going to look at. First, the former king's. To fully understand Isaiah chapter 9, you have to have an understanding of the history of the nation and the people. Of Israel. And so I'm going to actually give you a brief timeline from the time of Joseph, which we've been studying this semester, all the way up to the prophet Isaiah. You can follow along up here on the screen. In the 1800s, depend on what you set the date at, the family of Israel moves to Egypt. They come down to Egypt. They're fruitful, and they multiply, and they fill the earth, and they become this great nation. The Egyptians are threatened by the people of God, and so they enslave them for 400 years. Well, in 1446, God sends plagues upon Egypt and delivers his people in the Exodus. So the people exit out of Egypt, they are set free, they are headed towards the promised land. And as they are headed into the promised land, they rebel against God. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. In 1406 BC, they conquer the land under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua. The land of Israel is ruled by judges, but the people cry out for a king. And so they are unified as a nation under one king. That first king is Saul, and then it is David, and then it is Solomon. But because of Solomon's wickedness, the kingdom is divided. Israel becomes two different countries There's the northern kingdom, which is often called Israel, which makes things kind of confusing. But there is a northern kingdom, and there is a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is ruled by kings that are wicked, kings that do not worship the Lord God, kings that chase after idols like Baal, and set up temples to false gods, and lead the people in idolatry. The southern kingdom is filled with kings that Some of them are good, some of them are bad, but the overall trajectory is away from the Lord. Almost 200 years after the kingdom is divided, Isaiah comes and his ministry begins and he is a prophet in the land of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he is warning them against their corruption. In 735 B.C., just four years after his ministry begins, the northern kingdom of Israel, the people of God from the north, wage war on the people of God from the south. Isaiah encourages the king of the south to trust in the Lord, but he doesn't. He turns aside and trusts and makes, makes alliances with foreign pagan nations. And then in 730 B.C., Isaiah chapter 9 is written, when God's people are at war with one another, when destruction is imminent because of their rebellion. And we see destruction does indeed come in 722 BC. Northern kingdom of Israel is conquered and exiled, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. And then in 586, the southern kingdom is conquered and exiled. And so you see, the people of God are scattered. The people of God are in a horrible place. There is much suffering. The book of Isaiah is written so that we would know that the reason that the Assyrians and the Babylonians were able to conquer Israel was not because the Lord God was weak, but because the Lord God is strong. The Lord God was using the Assyrians and the Babylonians to purge the unrighteousness from Israel, to discipline his children whom he loves. The, the, the great suffering that came upon Israel was self-inflicted by the sin of the people. The people of God were conquered. The people of God were killed. The people of God were exiled. The people of God were sped, spread throughout the nations. They were no longer a people. The holy city of Jerusalem would be ruined. The temple of God that represents the, the presence of God would be dismantled. And so you see the people are in utter despair all because of the wickedness of their kings who did not lead them in worshipping the Lord God that are those are the former kings of the people of God and it leads to this horrible former kingdom the Lord is patient with his people the northern kingdom he gives 200 years to repent and turn to the Lord. The southern kingdom, 350 years to repent and turn to the Lord. But they were wicked. They were unfaithful in every area of their life, personally, religiously, and socially. And so God purges Zion of their unfaithfulness. And in verse 21 and 22, we see a picture of this land that has been destroyed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians because of the unfaithfulness of the kings of Israel. Look at verse 21 with me. It says, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress." darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It seems as if in this passage, in the history of Israel, all the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are coming untrue. You remember God promised them a promised property. They're being expelled from the promised land. God had promised them to become a great nation. Now they are a divided people, scattered throughout the nations. God had promised his presence, but now the temple of God, where God dwelt, lays in ruins. Their earthly kings have failed them. The people have been exiled. They're destitute. They're humiliated. And they're wondering, God, will there ever be a good day again? Verse 21 through 22 It's just a detailed description of how horrible it was. That all that remained for the people of God in the land of God was distress, hunger, wandering, starvation, rage, rebellion, distress, fearful gloom, and utter darkness. When I read the description of the land, the promised land, after the Assyrians and Babylonians come through and routed, I think of the movie Hotel Rwanda. Some of you have probably seen that movie. In this movie, there is this hotel in Rwanda and it's kind of this nice and civil and peaceful hotel. People are eating nice meals and enjoying company. But as soon as you go outside the walls of the hotel, there is utter chaos. There are people chasing people with machetes, shooting at families. There's a genocide going on between the two tribes, the Hutu and the Tutsis. And during this there's this powerful scene in which Paul, who's the main character in the movie, comes to a journalist staying at the hotel. And Paul, who, who's Hutu but is married to a Tutsi, says this. He says to this journalist, to this videographer, he says, I'm glad that you have shot this footage and that the world will see it. It is the only way we have a chance that people might intervene. <coughs> Excuse me. And Jack, the videographer, says, yeah, And if no one intervenes, is it still a good thing to show? And Paul responds, how can they not intervene when they witness such atrocities? And Jack, the videographer, responds, I think if people see this footage, they'll say, oh my God, that's horrible. And they'll then go on eating their dinner. The question that the people of God are facing God, do you see these atrocities? God, do you see what's going on with your people? Are you going to do anything about it? Or are you just going to go on eating your dinner? Are you going to intervene? Is there going to be a good day again? You see, this passage applies to us as well. You know, we don't live in a a worn, torn country. But we do live in a world that is affected by the fall. We live in a world in which there is family strife, in which brothers and sisters light, cheat, and steal. We live in a culture in which the workplace is a tense place to be, in which there is fighting, where there is dissension. We live in a world where many children don't know their mother or their father. We live in a world where there is not, where there's a genocide among the living, but there's also a genocide among those who are yet to be born. We live in a world where there is sickness, disease, and death, where there is chronic pain that will not end until you die. We live in a fallen world, and so we cry out with the people of God, God, will there ever be a good day again? And that's why God wrote Isaiah chapter 9, to give us the hope that is to come. God tells us, of a new kingdom. He starts by telling us where that kingdom will originate. In verse one of Isaiah nine, we read, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into content the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now there is a lot of different Descriptions of regions and areas described here. It talks about Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea. (coughs) Excuse me. The land beyond the Jordan. All of these are referring to the land of Galilee, the region in which Nazareth would be founded. And so Isaiah is prophesying that this region, this region of Galilee is going to be defeated. It's going to be humiliated. The people are going to be exiled. But he also is prophesying that the kingdom of God is going to originate, it's going to break forth in this region of Galilee. Not in Judah, not in Jerusalem, but in Galilee. We read the fulfillment of this prophecy over 700 years later when Jesus starts his ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, we read that now when he, Jesus, heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth. For that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven. Same thing as the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simeon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, and they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so we see indeed in Galilee is where the kingdom of God originate. In Nazareth, along the Sea of Galilee, that's where Jesus is gathering his disciples. That's where Jesus is preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's where Jesus is healing the lame and the sick, reversing the effects of the fall. And so we see the origin of the kingdom of God, but we also see the nature of God's new kingdom. We see several things about it, and we're just going to kind of go through the list. First, we see it is a kingdom of light. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You know, when I think of darkness, when I think of utter darkness, I think of terror. I think of ignorance. I think of confusion, But God has chosen to come into our darkness and to shine a light upon us. To give us joy, to give us delight, to give us clarity, to give us truth, to give us the light of the world. In the Old Testament, God is described as light. And when you get to the New Testament, Jesus is called the light of the world. God has not forgotten his people in darkness, but into their darkness has shined this great light. We see it as a kingdom of light. It is also a kingdom of expansion. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, singular. You have multiplied the nation. God expands his people, his nation. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. They're decimated, they're wiped out, they're spread throughout the world. But in the New Testament, they come together as the church. And he enfolds the Gentiles and it explodes. The nation multiplies. It is a kingdom of joy. Verse 3 goes on, You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. The kingdom of God is one that should be characterized by great joy. I don't know if you've ever been to a church where there is no joy in the church. But that is not characteristic of the kingdom of God. Yes, life is difficult. Yes, we live in a fallen world. But we are joyful followers of Jesus Christ because we have been loved by the God of the universe. Because he has come to us. Because he has delivered us. Because he has given us life abundantly. It is a kingdom of joy. And it is a kingdom of joy of freedom. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff on for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. God has broken the tyranny of the Assyrians. He has broken the tyranny of the Babylonians. And now he has broken the tyranny of Satan, sin, and death. Number five, it is a kingdom of peace. Verse 5, for every boot, of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The kingdom of God that has come, that is advancing, is a kingdom of peace. It is a kingdom in which the attire of war is no longer needed. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace. You can see here the stark contrast, can't you? between the old kingdom, between the kingdoms of this world and between the kingdom of God. One is a kingdom of darkness and the other is a kingdom of light. One is a kingdom of desolation and the other a kingdom of multiplication. One is a kingdom of distress and gloom and the other a kingdom of joy and rejoicing. One is a kingdom of defeat and the other a kingdom of great victory. One is a kingdom of war and the other is a kingdom of peace. And so you can imagine how the people of God, sitting in exile, reading the book of Isaiah, would have read these words and longed for the day for the kingdom to come. The kingdom has come. The kingdom has come in part when the prophecies were fulfilled. When Christ came, he inaugurated his kingdom. He brought forth his kingdom. He started to heal the lame, the sick, the blind, preach forgiveness, repentance of sins. He established this kingdom that, will, that is advancing, that is going forth, that is rolling out, and that will be completed when he returns. God is expanding his kingdom and his people. The kingdom of light is rolling back the darkness in our souls. The kingdom of joy and rejoicing is pushing back distress and darkness The kingdom of freedom is conquering the slavery to sin. And the kingdom of peace is settling our troubled souls. This is the kingdom God has promised. This is the kingdom that Christ has inaugurated. This is the kingdom that he will complete when he returns. So that is God's new kingdom. The prophet moves on to talk about God's new king verse 6. And these are the words that are probably so familiar to you. I actually heard it on the radio on the way over. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. To us, to us who are in a fallen and broken world. To us who long for a better kingdom. To us who long for a better king. A son is given. He's given. He is a gift given to us. This is the hope of Christmas. You know, every year we gather together and we open presents and we're excited and we enjoy them. And that's a good thing. We should enjoy the gifts that God has given to us. But all of them are just a shadow of the greater gift that God has already given to us. In Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, The promise of Isaiah 9 is that God would give us the greatest gift of all. We read of it in John 3, 16, that famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christmas is a reminder to us that God did not leave us to the destiny of our kingdoms on this world, that God did not leave us to the destiny of our kings, but that God has sent his great king to establish a new kingdom, to be a sacrifice for our sins, that we could be part of his glorious kingdom and follow him as king forever. You know, if you are trying to figure out what to get your loved one for Christmas, whether it be a child or a parent or a sibling, The thing you want to identify is what is the biggest need in their life? What do they need? If you can fulfill that need, then it's going to be a great gift. God gives us the greatest gift because he has fulfilled our greatest need. You know, it's been said that if our greatest need was information, God would have given us an educator. If our greatest need was technology, God would have given us a scientist. If our greatest need was money, God would have given us an economist. If our greatest need was pleasure, God would have given us an entertainment. But our greatest need was forgiveness. And so on Christmas, God gave us a Savior. Do you know this Savior? Do you know this long-awaited King who brings this glorious kingdom? Not just intellectually, but do you know him personally? Have you worshipped this child? Have you fallen down before him and adored him as your Savior? Isaiah goes on to explain the nature of the new king, and I'm going to kind of scurry along it. It says, And the government shall be upon his shoulders. He will rule with righteousness at the right hand of the Father forever. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, meaning he's a wonderful strategist. He will will accomplish our victory over Satan, sin, and death. Mighty God, this child is not like Mighty God. He is God. This word, this term Mighty God literally means God is a mighty warrior. This baby is a warrior. He is a champion that will fight on behalf of his people. Everlasting Father. This isn't a reference to the second person of the Trinity. This is a reference to a kingly figure. The kingly figures were called fathers. They had a paternal instinct, a paternal responsibility for their people. Jesus would be Everlasting Father. And finally, he would be Prince of Peace. He would accomplish the ultimate victory, ushering in peace, in which there will be no more war, no more strife, no more pain. Verse 7 Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is such good news. There is no election for king of the universe. There will be no re-election for the king of the universe. There is not going to be a campaign. He is king now, always, and forever. The description continues, second part of verse 7. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, And forevermore, this king that was to come for the people of God would be the long-awaited king, the king that would come from the line of David, the eternal king. Let me end with this. Today, we look at one of the prophecies of Christ. In his book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner applies this modern science of probability to just eight prophecies, of Christ from the Old Testament. He says the chances that any man might have fulfilled all eight prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros behind it. It is 1 in 100 quadrillion. 1 in 100 quadrillion. That's like one of those, you know, numbers you throw out when you're a kid, right? 100 quadrillion is the, is the probability of all of these coming true. He says it would be like if you took the state of Texas and you took a silver coin and you laid down silver coins on the state of Texas, 100 100 quadrillion coins would fill it two feet tall. And so the chances of all of these eight prophecies coming true in Christ would be like taking one coin, putting a special indication on it, throwing it into Texas, and then taking a man, blindfolding him, parachuting him in and say, go pick the right coin. That's the probability of all of these prophecies coming true in Christ. And yet we are told throughout the Old Testament that there are somewhere upwards of 300 prophecies fulfilled in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And the question is, how can all of these come true? I mean, the the statistics show that it is completely impossible. Well, the best news comes at the end of verse 7. In Isaiah chapter 9, we read the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We do not have to depend on probability. We don't have to depend on earthly kings or kingdoms to establish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And he has done it. And that's what we celebrate Christmas morning. You see, no matter how saddened you are by the kings and the kingdoms of this world, No matter how frustrated you are, no matter in how much suffering and pain you are, and how much you long for that kingdom to come, there is one who wants it more than you. Because he is zealous for you. Because he is zealous for me. Because he is zealous for his church. He is the one who can accomplish it. No matter what the odds, God is so zealous for you. And he is so zealous for his church that God promises and carries forth his promise to bring forth a king that will usher in a new kingdom. See, as we celebrate Christmas, we are reminded of the people in the Old Testament who had to await the coming of this kingdom, to inaugurate this kingdom. And yet today, in this week, and this month, as we celebrate Christmas, it is a reminder to us that we are awaiting the second coming of this Savior to complete this kingdom that God had promised in Isaiah chapter 9. Let us wait expectantly, hopefully, joyfully as He brings forth the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come, long expected Jesus. We live in a world in which Christmas is the brightest day of the year for many of us, but for some of us it is a day of deep sadness because we're reminded of tragedies in our life, God. Lost loved ones and others who aren't able to be with us. Family dynamics that are full of friction and anger and strife. Lord God, we pray that you would come quickly, that Christmas would not just be one day of the year, but that it would be every day of the year and it would be more glorious than anything we could comprehend. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.